The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Okay. <clears throat> One of the important parts of applying lessons of the teaching on karma to practice is that you learn to look at everything that happens in your meditation either as an intention or the result of an intention. This becomes particularly important when you start getting into deep stages of concentration and as you start developing insight. Because there can be otherwise a tendency, say, when you get into an experience, say, of infinite space, infinite consciousness, nothingness, you start making metaphysical suppositions about it. You've gotten in touch with the ground of being, you've gotten in touch with Rigpa, or some you know, deep metaphysical thing. And the Buddha is constantly saying, no, look at it in terms of what are you doing, where's the stress that comes from what you're doing, can you drop the action that's causing the stress? Similarly with insight. Okay, insight is something that you use strategically. You're not here to learn truths that you're going to hang on to. You're learning the truths that you hold on to as tools. When the tools have done their work, you put them aside. Um, this is borne out in a couple of the um, passages I want you to look at here. Passage number 14. It's a long passage. Let's just go through one or two instances and you'll get the basic, the basic um, theme. Okay, the Buddha... Ananda says, I heard that the Buddha say this, I now remain fully in the dwelling of emptiness. Did I hear that correctly? Learn it correctly? Attend it correctly? Remember it correctly? And the Buddha said, yes. And he says, now as well as before, I remain fully in the dwelling of emptiness. Now, this is a question of what does emptiness mean? He gives an analogy. Just this palace of Megara's mother is empty of elephants, cattle, and mares, empty of gold and silver, empty of assemblies of women and men, Okay, he's basically talking about the things that used to be there in the palace back when Megara's mother lived there. She gave the palace over to the monks that became the monastery. Imagine that. Okay, but now it no longer has the elephants, cattle, mares, gold and silver assemblies of women and men. Okay, this is now there's only this non-emptiness, the singleness based on the community of monks. So that's basically what it is. It's freedom from disturbance. So that's what emptiness means here. Then, he's, then, he gives, then he starts talking about the different stages of meditation. Even so, a monk, not attending to the perception or mental note of village, not attending to the perception of human beings, attends to the singleness, okay, that's the singleness of mind, based on the perception of wilderness. His mind takes pleasure, finds satisfaction, settles and indulges in its perception of wilderness. You've probably had an experience like this. You've gone out to a place of wilderness and the cares of your job, the cares of your family, all the other issues that would come with living with human beings just drop away. It's just you and the Grand Canyon or you and Yosemite Valley. That's it. And there's a great feeling of freedom. You're not worried about what people are thinking or what people are doing. You're just there in the wilderness. And you might notice, okay, my mind, and he says, okay. And then you take pleasure, find satisfaction, settle and indulge in your perception of wilderness. I mean, it's a really a pleasant place to be in that perception. You discern that whatever disturbances that would exist based on the perception of village are not present. Whatever disturbances that would exist based on the perception of human being are not present. There's only this modicum of disturbance, the singleness based on the perception of wilderness. In other words, wilderness is not totally a 
secure idea. Because you're in the wilderness, of course, there's dangers in the wilderness. At least, but at least you don't have human dangers. Years back, we had a young teacher from New York City coming and staying in the monastery. And he was afraid to stay out in a tent under the trees. And I said, well, you walk down these streets in New York, you know. <laughs> but he says, who knows what's out under the trees? Um, and it took me a whole week to convince him that the trees were a lot safer than the streets of New York. You know. But still, okay, it was possible that there were disturbances. <laughs> in his case, there was. Um, <laughs> this is one of those great ironies. You calm him down and get him all ready into the tent. And he decides he has to leave the tent at midnight to go out the bathroom, and he unzips the tent. And it turns out we ha our neighbor had this psychopath dog <laughs> who was about two meters away from the tent glaring at him. <laughs> so, so there are dangers in the wilderness, okay? But the fact that you're there, you can put aside all these other disturbances, the human being disturbances. I was in Zion National Park one time climbing up to Angel's Landing. Have you ever been to Angel's Landing? Yeah, yeah okay. And... You're going up to Angel's Landing, <coughs> dressed as a monk. You figure out that um, sandals are no longer useful, that your bare feet would be more useful, so you take off your sandals and you put them in your pocket. And then after a while, you decide that your robe is getting in the way, and so you tie it as a sash around your waist, okay? Now, so picture me dressed like that, okay? Coming up Angel's Landing. And, we're, and we hear these people coming down the other side, coming down the other way. And from a hundred yards away, you know that they're working at a modeling agency in Los Angeles. Because <laughs> they're talking business as they're coming down. And I kept thinking, here you are in Zion Canyon, and all you can talk about is movie stars and models and whatever. This is crazy. They come around the corner, they see me. Um, they say, oh, look, look, doesn't it feel like we're in Tibet? <laughs> quick, quick, take a picture. <laughs> Oh, see his bare feet? Make sure you get his bare feet. And it's a point where I wish I had an agent. You know, I could say, here, see my agent, take my card. Uh. <laughs> but it seems like a real waste. Here you are in Zion, and all you're talking about is models and actors. At any rate, the, I, here you are back with a monk meditating. Okay, whatever disturbances that would exist based on these other perceptions are not there. There is just this one modicum of disturbance, which is the perception of wilderness. You discern, that this, you discern that this mode of perception is empty of the perception of village. This mode of perception is empty of the perception of human being. There's only this non-emptiness, the singleness based on the perception of wilderness. Thus you regard it as empty of whatever is not there. Whatever remains you discern as present. There is this. And so this, your entry into emptiness accords with actuality, is undistorted in meaning and pure. So what you do then is you drop that perception of wilderness, and you try to find a more peaceful perception. In this case, it goes to the perception of the singleness of earth. Your mind takes pleasure, finds satisfactions, indulges, settles and indulges in its perception of earth. Just as a bull's hide is stretched free from wrinkles with a hundred stakes. Get this image, okay, you try to stretch out the hide so there's no wrinkles at all. Pull it really tight. And even so, without attending to all the ridges and hollows, the river ravines, and the tracks of stumps and thorns, the craggy irregularities of the earth, you attend simply to the singleness based on the perception of earth. So you're not thinking about all the details of earth, it's just its earthness. You hold that in mind as a topic of your concentration. That is the perception or mental label that you're holding in mind. That's even more peaceful than the perception of wilderness, because there's no 
tigers, no diseases, no other you know, mosquitoes or whatever in that perception. There's just earth. Okay. And you make the same observation. You see that this is free of the disturbance that would be based on the based on the perception of wilderness. There's only this disturbance remaining, which is the singleness based on the perception of earth. So what you're doing here is you're learning to look at your stage of concentration and say, okay, where is the peace here? Where is the disturbance? You're looking to get to more and more and more peaceful levels. And then you notice, okay, what's what's this remaining disturbance? How do you drop that? What kind of what kind of perception would you replace that one with to get to a more peaceful state? So again, you're looking here at the state not so much as a metaphysical principle, but it's an action. You're looking at the perception that's disturbing it. That perception has an element of invention in it. So you're looking for the disturbance that's caused by your perception, your intention. Now, what's more peaceful than the perception of Earth? There'd be the dimension of infinitude of space. And then from there, you go to the perception of the dimension of the infinitude of consciousness. Then you go to nothingness. Then you go to neither perception nor non-perception. And then from there you go what, what he calls the themeless concentration of awareness. That's a concentration that has no object. It's the mind kind of concentrated, but it, without a particular object that you can identify as an object. All of these are fabricated states. But in each case, you look for where's the disturbance. And you see that it's caused by the perception, and the perception has an intention behind it. So again, you're looking at this in terms of action. You, you realize, okay, it's created by this perception, or I'm able to tune in. And that's, I think, the best way you can think about this, is you're tuning into different dimensions. You hold that perception in mind, and you look for whatever it is in your experience that confirms that, yeah, that's there. You kind of tune into it. It's like if you're holding, perception, you're holding in mind the perception of Earth. Okay, you've got the, the floor here, you've got the walls here, and part of Earth is solidity. It's all solid, right? But if you start thinking about, what about the space between the atoms? space in the atoms. There's a lot of space there. And you just hold that in mind, it's almost like everything opens up. You can think, oh, there's space that goes right through those, right through you, right through the window, right through the trees, right through everything. And that's a much more peaceful um, perception than the perception of Earth. And then from space you go to consciousness, consciousness you go to these various levels. Okay, and then finally you get to, let's see, at the themeless concentration of awareness, look at the next to last paragraph. You discern that this themeless concentration of awareness is fabricated and mentally fashioned. Then you discern that whatever is fa fabricated and mentally fashioned is inconstant and subject to cessation. Yeah, that creates a sense of disenchantment. Thus knowing, thus seeing the mind is released from the fermentation of sensuality, the fermentation of becoming, the fermentation of ignorance. With release, there is the knowledge, released. You discern that birth is ended, the holy life fulfilled, the task done. There's nothing further for this world. You discern that whatever disturbances would base, exist based on the fermentation of sensuality, becoming, ignorance, are not present. There's only this modicum of disturbance that connected with the six sensory spheres, spheres dependent on this very body with life as its condition. Okay, you, when you've, re, you know, you've basically come out of the experience of awakening, and this is the only thing that you've got left. You discern that this mode of perception is empty of the, these fermentations, and this is the only disturbance that's left. You realize, of course, that whatever 
is dependent on the body, and with life as its condition, will end at the end of life. And then there's total freedom from disturbance. So you regard it as empty of whatever is not there, whatever remains you discern as present. There is this. And so this, your entry into emptiness, accords with actuality, is undistorted in meaning, pure, superior, and unsurpassed. Okay. And at the very end, the Buddha goes on to say, whoever has attained, it's, I didn't include this last paragraph, whoever, whoever has attained the unsurpassed emptiness does it in this way. Whoever will attain unsurpassed emptiness will do it in this way, and whoever is doing this at present. It's a pattern very similar to the teaching to Rahula. In fact, you can actually take the teaching to Rahula about looking at your actions, looking at where they're causing harm, and learning how to stop doing that, and applying it here. You've got a state of concentration, you look, where's the disturbance here? So instead of affliction, we're talking in terms of disturbance. The Pali word is dharata, D-A-R-A-T-H-A. And if you see whatever you're doing that's causing that disturbance, you drop it. So it's the same principle. To look at it another way, you're seeing applying the principles of the Four Noble Truths. Where is the stress? What are you doing that's causing the stress? You learn how to drop that. So again, you're looking at the state of concentration as the result of an intention that you're holding in mind, the intention that's behind the perception that holds it all together. And that way you get past all the, all the problems that can come if you say, gee, I've reached the ground of being, or I've reached Buddha nature, or I've reached whatever. You keep looking for the stress. Because right next to it, that's where you're going to see subtle intentions. Passage 15. Well, let's stop there for a second with questions. Yes. Um, could you define what ground of being is? I've heard the term, but I really don't know what it means. Basically, there's some, uh, it's, again, it's a metaphysical principle that everything comes from. For example, you could be in a state of like the infinitude of dimension, uh, dimension and the infinitude of consciousness. You have this sense that everything you're experiencing is coming to you from this ground of consciousness and returning to it. While the ground of consciousness itself seems to be unaffected by the arising and passing way of things. It's just like consciousness embraces everything and everything comes from that consciousness. You can see that there are a lot of metaphysical suppositions could arise there. Your consciousness is, is being, or it's the ultimate existence, or the ultimate reality. And all these other things that you're experiencing are just kind of coming out of that ephemerally and going away. You've probably heard teachings like this, right? I mean, is that, is that what the Christians are talking about with God, then? When they, sometimes when they say they have God consciousness, or some of the mystics would say, yeah. Mm-hmm. But you also see this in some schools of Buddhism, some schools of Hinduism as well. Where you get into trouble there, of course, is when you say, gee, this consciousness I've reached is totally unsullied by anything. Therefore, the defilements aren't really defilements. There's nothing to be defiled, right? I can do all kinds of things. <laughs> that's, where, that's where that metaphysical belief gets you into trouble. But you wouldn't, though. Wouldn't enter your consciousness to do anything other than whatever you. Well, you whatever comes up is natural, right? Yeah. Well, that's it. It wouldn't come up, though, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be wise enough to know 
I've already been there. Done Consciousness that. doesn't necessarily make you wise. Uh, concentration doesn't necessarily make you wise. No, but I thought that in terms of even getting that far in concentration, you had to, to work through all these defilements, no? To put them aside for a while. But it doesn't carry on into your life after that. Not necessarily. Especially if you get to this idea that the consciousness is not sullied by anything, and what people used to tell you were defilements or not defilements. I know not a few people who got really strong powers of concentration and then moved off in that direction. Well, that sounds like a great delusion. It is. Yeah. I mean, this is why you have teacher sex scandals. So the Buddha is saying, don't look at it in those terms. Look at it, okay, even how, no matter how refined it is, look at what kind of action is keeping this going. Where is the disturbance in here? The disturbance is right next to the perception that holds together the concentration. It's an activity that you're doing as you tune into this. And then as you tune into that dimension, okay, remember, you did an action to tune in. It's like all the radio waves that are going through this room right now. They're coming from Oakland, they're coming from San Francisco, they're coming from San Jose. And you, you know, you've got a radio that you can tune into the different levels. If you hadn't tuned in, you wouldn't be in touch with it. So you're looking here more at the tuning in. And say, okay, there's still some stress in the fact that I have to tune in. So that's what you're looking for. Because then you see, this, I'm, this, this is still causing a burden for the mind. I've got to drop this. And that gets you past that. This is why the teachings of the Four Noble Truths are so useful. Years back, I had some people visiting the monastery. They'd been um, taking a course at UCLA in Buddhist philosophy. And apparently they spent two weeks on Theravada and the rest of the semester on Mahayana. And, it, and the professor even apologized for those first two weeks, saying, well, you know, I know this is not all that interesting. We'll get to the good stuff in a couple of weeks. <laughs> and I, I think there's an awful lot of good stuff <laughs> in Theravada. And, and when you forget and when you get beyond, and when you basically decide you're beyond that, then you're in trouble. Any other questions? Yes. Is there any significance in you that um, in this passage he uses that word dharata instead of um, dukkha, the disturbance instead of stress? Okay, again, it's, it's it's a very subtle level of disturbance, but essentially it's related to stress. Yes, I have a fundamental question about meditation, which I'm kind of confused. Um, some teachers say when you're doing observing your uh, breathing not to get involved like observe like an outsider observing it mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and from what you're saying that we are totally engaged and uh, being very critical about what you're experiencing how, how, how does these two ideas meet is that you want I, them to meet in other words, is it correct to say that you don't get involved in anything, you just be an observer? Well, you look at the Buddha, and no expectation, in other words? Well, you look at the Buddha's um, teaching on this. I mean, the, 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 the wisdom that comes in not having any expectations means learning to be patient. But you've got to have some expectations. And the Buddha himself says in his 16 steps, the first three, two steps are just watching the breath, long or short. And then you start training yourself to breathe in different ways. You breathe in a way where you're aware of the whole body. You breathe in a way that's going to calm what he calls bodily fabrications, which is the effect of the breath on the body. 
You breathe in such a way as to give rise to pleasure, give rise to rapture. You reason, read, breathe in such a way so that you notice how the perception that you're holding about the breath is having an impact on the mind. You've got to be involved. Yeah. He is teaching a skill. And there's, there's one passage where one monk says, oh yeah, I'm already in, I already pay attention to the breath. I put aside my thoughts of the past, put aside my thoughts of the future, and I learn to be equanimous about the breath and the present. And the Buddha says, well, there is that kind of breath meditation, but it's not going to give you the results that this other method gets. Thank you. Okay. Anything else? Okay, let's go on to the next passage. Here we're talking about discernment that looks at things as actions. <clears throat> the Buddha goes through the different ways that we can assume a sense of self, and he sees that they're all fabrication. Remember again, fabrication is a type of intention, type of karma. You assume your form, it could be your body, to be yourself. That assumption is a fabrication. Now what is the cause, what is the origination, what is the birth, what is the coming into existence of that fabrication? To an uninstructed, run-of-the-mill person, touched by that which is felt, born of contact with ignorance, craving arises. The fabrication is born of that. And that fabrication is inconstant, fabricated, dependently co-arisen. That craving, that feeling, that contact, that ignorance is inconstant, fabricated, dependently co-arisen. It's by knowing and seeing this way that one without delay puts an end to the mental fermentations. So in other words, you take this view of the self as being your body. And he says, okay, instead of arguing as to whether it's true or not, he says, look at where does that come from? Where does that assumption come from? Well, it comes from craving. And that craving comes from contact, the craving, contact, feeling, and ignorance. All of these things are inconstant. So in other words, you look at the assumption of a self as an activity in the mind. And seeing it as an activity, you develop dispassion for it. You're, you're, then he goes on, or he doesn't form, assume form to be the self, but he assumes the self as possessing form. In other words, you have this self that is formless, but it has this form that it carries around or that it controls or that it owns. Or you can have the idea that form is in yourself, as when you have a cosmic sense of self and the body is just this little thing in your larger self. Or you have the idea of self as in form, like this little person who peers out your eyes and listens into your ears. Or whatever the image you might have of how yourself is related to the body. Now notice he's not saying that the, the form is your conventional self. He's saying basically you make these assumptions. You create a sense of self, and you can create it in any one of these terms. It was you're thinking in terms of the body, either that the body is yourself, or you have the self that owns the body, or that the self, the body is in your larger self, or there's a smaller self that's in your body. I don't know about you. When I was a child and I was, went to church, I was told that we had a soul. I had this picture of this little piece of leather inside my... <laughs> inside my heart. <laughs> my older brother had a stranger one, I thought. He said he had this vision of this little rusty tin can that had an iron bar going through it. <laughs> and that was his soul. <laughs> But in each case, regardless of the self-assumption you have, the Buddha says, look at it as a kind of fabrication. Where does the fabrication come from? What's the action? What's the intention 
of creating the sense of self. In other places, he calls this I making and my making. And you realize, you realize okay, this is an activity that's going to be stressful. You learn how to drop it. And of course, he, this has nothing to, not, is not exclusively related to the body or to form. The same thing happens in current, with terms of feeling. Either you see the feeling as the self, or the self as possessing feeling, or the feeling as in self, or the self as in the feeling. The same with perceptions, fabrications, and consciousness. Now, this covers any kind of self-view you might have. Cosmic selves, little selves, big selves, connected selves, separate selves. All of them are fabrications. Or you have this one. This, this is the cosmic self. This self is the same as the cosmos. This I will be after death, constant, lasting, eternal, not subject to change. Or you may have the view that I would not be, there wouldn't either be as mine. I will not be, neither will there be what is mine. In other words, so you, you have the view that whatever you are is going to be annihilated at death. That too is a fabrication. Or you may be doubtful and uncertain, agnostic, coming to have no conclusion with regard to through drama. Okay, you, you don't escape from attachment to views that way, because that agnosticism is also fabricated, subject to change. In every case, it's caused by craving, feeling, and contact. When you begin to see all these different views as types of activities, you put them aside because you see, okay, well, this is this this stress that's involved with all of this. It's fabricated and constant, dependently co-arisen. It's going to be stress involved. So when you see the, the the stress that's involved in each of these views, that's one inducement to developing dispassion for them. Passage 16, the Buddha then goes on to say, <coughs> he's been talking about various views. He says, this the Tathagata discerns. And he discerns that these standpoints, thus seized, thus held to, thus lead to such and such a destination, to such and such a state in the world beyond. Okay, again, you look at what do these views do? What do they lead you to do? Again, look at the views in terms of being actions for the mind. That helps you to step outside of them, and then you discern what surpasses this. Okay, what is higher than having these views? And yet, discerning that, you do not hold to that act of discernment. Okay, this is the point where you have to let go even of the path, because the discernment itself is an activity. And as you are not holding to it, unbinding, here the Pali term is nibbuti, is experienced right within. Knowing for what they are, the origin, ending, allure, and drawbacks of feelings along with emancipation from feelings, the Tathagata monks, through lack of clinging and sustenance, is released. Because he had said earlier that all of these views grow out of craving based on feeling. So he sees these things in terms of the activity that underlies them, the activity that creates them. And then even the activity of doing that self, remember, of course, the path is a fabrication. That fabrication ultimately has to be let go of as well. So you're looking at everything as an activity. And that's when you and when you develop this passion for it. Okay, so in other words, wisdom here is tactical. It looks at things in terms of actions, and it itself is a type of action that you use to free yourself from the other from the other attachments, and then finally you let go of that as well. Any questions? <laughs> yes.
It reminds me a little bit of uh, when you become a master at something. Mm -hmm. You have these things that you use and you cling to to get to a certain point Mm -hmm. where you achieve mastery. Then you drop them. Mm -hmm. But you need them in order to reach that mastery. Exactly. Mm -hmm. The Buddha often gives analogies that are based on mastery of skills. Mm -hmm. There's a really good book out there. It's called The Craftsman by Richard Sennett, S-E-N-N-E-T. He talks about um, one of the problems of modern society is that we've lost our crafts and skills. And the type of sort of um, psychological and emotional strengths that people develop from skills have also been lost. And the book is kind of scattered, but has lots of neat little vignettes about different periods of history and the different skills that people have developed. It reminds me also of uh, our culture, or particularly uh, the baby boomers, uh, got so much self-esteem, but they got their self-esteem by being told they were good, not by what they could do. Mm-hmm. And you really get self-esteem by uh, accomplishment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, we had a young monk at the monastery one time with lots of self-esteem. So much that it created trouble. <laughs> so, any other questions? Yes. Um, in number 17, mm-hmm. uh, it says that uh, the, uh, talks about the realm of the hungry shades. We'll be getting there shortly. Okay. okay. We just finished 16. Okay. <laughs> um, again, clarification question. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned view is um, attention and perception. Mm-hmm. And intention, is intention before that or is intention the reason for the attention? They go back and forth. Oh. They influence each other. There's no sequence. Well, the view will determine your intention and then the intentions you have, the, th- the experiences you result as a result of acting on that intention is going to change your views or reaffirm your views. So that's one of those areas. that You look at all those factors that are in name. You've got attention, intention, contact, feeling, perception, they influence one another. There's no sequence. Is it getting late in the afternoon? <laughs> okay, We're going to get to simpler stuff in a minute. Okay. Okay. Now, those are the lessons that karma teaches you about sort of the, the micro level of meditation. Now, if you look at things on the macro level, the results playing out in your life and across many lifetimes. And this, again, this is following the example of the Buddha on the night of his awakening. He had that vision of the universe and the second knowledge, and then he applied it to the present moment. What are some of the macro levels that you want to use to understand your present moment, what you need to do right now? Okay. Right, first, we'll start with some general principles. Okay. The first thing is that karma, the results of karma, the Buddha says, are imponderable. He said, if you try to think about them, you will go crazy. You try to work it all out, like things like you know, group karma, um, why so-and-so suffered, why so-and-so, another person didn't suffer in a different way. The Buddha says, you go crazy trying to trace that all out because it is so complex. I mean, you think about all the different things you've done in the course of a day. How many intentions did you have today? 
and multiply that by you know, 365 days in a year and the number of years you live in a life, you've got lots of intentions in your karmic field. Okay, And some of them are growing fast and some of them are growing slow. Some of them are pushing one another out of the field. Um, so it's going to be complex. But people have pondered <laughs> about these things. The commentary has a number of things to say about this. One, you may have heard, is that there are four types of karma. There's strong, habitual karma, strong karma, habitual karma, near-death karma, and random karma. Okay, this is something that the commentaries have basically sorted out. And just to, basically, they're, they're talking about the type of karma that will influence where you're going to be reborn. Um, strong karma, you've done something really good or really bad. They say that tends to be that tends to be the strongest of the of the group. Next to that is habitual karma, the things that you did repeatedly, day after day after day. If none of those are particularly strong, then your near death thoughts, your near death decisions, are going to have a big impact. And finally, even if your near death your near death thoughts are not all that particularly decisive, then it's just random. I.e., who knows which particular karmic result is going to pop up and take you. But again, that's the commentary. There are some general patterns, though, that you can see in the teachings in the canon. First one is the results of breaking precepts. Now remember, these are tendencies. Okay. And this passage 17 just goes down the different tendencies. Basically, if you take life, the slightest of all the results coming from the taking of life is that when one becomes a human being, it leads to a short lifespan. We're going to go through the, the human results and all these. Stealing, it leads to loss of one's wealth. Illicit sexual behavior leads to rivalry and revenge. You have to remember, the Buddhist definition of illicit sexuality is having sex with someone that someone else has a claim on. And the someone else may also be that person may have taken a vow of celibacy. But otherwise, either the parents have a claim over the child or the girlfriend has a claim over the boyfriend, or you know whatever the partner is, the partner has a claim over a partner. You don't mess around with those people. Okay? If you do, that's a less sexuality. And the result, of course, is rivalry and revenge. Telling falsehoods means that sometime down the line you're going to be falsely accused. This, again, these are tendencies. Divisive tail-bearing means it leads to the breaking of your friendships. Sometimes you see that frame, divisive tail-bearing, um, translated as slander, but that's not an accurate translation. Slander is when you're lying. Divisive tail-bearing is when you know that two people are friends and you want to break them apart. And so you tell them, did you hear what someone did? And you tell them true things. That's still divisive. Okay? Abusive speech leads to, I love this one, it would lead to unappealing sounds. <laughs> <laughs> living next to a freeway or something. <laughs> Frivolous chattering will lead to words that are not worth taking to heart. In other words, you're just a lot of garbage. Um, the drinking of fermented and distilled liquors leads to the tendency of mental derangement. So those are tendencies that come from breaking the precepts. So there are those patterns. You may also remember what the Buddha talks about discernment. The root of discernment comes from going to people, visiting contemplatives and Brahmins to ask what is skillful and what is not skillful. Lack of discernment results from not wanting to do that. 
you don't go look to anybody for advice. That same passage, the Mahmajim 135, I don't have it here in the readings, but also talks about uh, why people are ugly. It's because they gave vent to their anger. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> you always hear that when you're talking about karma. Uh oh. <laughs> Um, the reason some people are uninfluential is because they showed a lot of disrespect. That kind of thing. Again, these are tendencies. We're not talking ironclad determinism. We're talking about tendencies. Okay. There's also what they call a synergy for good or bad karma. In other words, if you have a lot of good karma, it works together to strengthen your good karma. If you have a lot of bad karma, it works together to strengthen bad results. Look at passage 18. I used to call this the Bush effect, now I'll just call it the tyrant effect, okay? Look at the second paragraph. <clears throat> Greed itself is unskillful. Whatever a greedy person fabricates by means of body, speech, or intellect, that too is unskillful. Whatever suffering a greedy person, his mind overcome with greed, his mind consumed, wrongly inflicts on another person through beating or imprisonment or confiscation, or placing blame or banishment with the thought, I have power, I want power, that too is unskillful. Thus it is that many evil, unskillful qualities, in other words, dhamma, which can also mean events or actions, born of greed, caused by greed, originated through greed, conditioned by greed, come into play. Okay, now, when someone has been doing that, and a person like this is called one who speaks at the wrong time, speaks what is unfactual, speaks what is irrelevant, speaks contrary to the dharma speaks contrary to the Vinaya. Why? Because of having wrongly inflicted suffering on another person through beating or imprisonment or confiscation or placing blame or banishment with his power. When told what is factual, he denies it and doesn't acknowledge this. Do you know of any politicians we've had? <laughs> when told what is unfactual, he doesn't make an ardent effort to untangle it to see this is unfactual, this is ungrounded. You know, he just believes what he wants to believe and he doesn't believe what he doesn't want to believe doesn't want to look into other people's wrongdoing because he's afraid his wrongdoing is going to get looked into. That's why a person like this is called one who speaks at the wrong time, speaks what is unfactual, speaks what is irrelevant, speaks contrary to the Dharma, the Vinaya. So, a person like this, his mind overcome with evil, unskillful qualities, born of greed, born of aversion, born of delusion, his mind consumed, dwells in suffering right in the here and now, feeling threatened, turbulent, feverish, and at the breakup of the body after death can expect a bad destination. In other words, there is kind of a snowball effect. If you start getting involved in really unskillful behavior, it leads to more and more and more unskillful behavior. And you're getting more and more entangled and unwilling to pull yourself out. <coughs> On the other hand, I don't have the passage here, but they talk about the synergy for good, which is that if a person is virtuous, if a person like that makes a vow, it tends to be have, a, have more power than an unvirtuous person's vow. You make up your mind, you want to do something, and if you've been virtuous, it's more likely to succeed. And John Lee talks about this a lot. And you, there's a passage in the canon where Jitta, who's a householder, who they, it was, was a non-returner, at the moment, as he's lying on his deathbed, the devas come to him and said, you know, you have the virtue that if you made a vow to become a universal monarch, you could. We think it would be good for the world if you did this because you're a virtuous person. And Jitta says, well, even that is impermanent. Now, of course, the people sitting around listening to, to Jitta at his deathbed don't see the devas. All they see is you know, Jitta saying, even that's impermanent. 
You say, are you losing grip? <laughs> and he said, no, I'm just talking to the Davis. <laughs> and, but again, it's the belief that, and it's stated in the canon, that the more virtuous you are, then when you make a vow that something that you want to accomplish something, that's more likely to come true. So there is a synergetic effect on virtue, just as there's a synergetic effect on unskillful behavior. Any questions on 17 and 18? You had a question on 17 back there. I just wondered if um, the term hungry shades mm-hmm. is what we call hungry, hungry ghosts. ghosts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was just thinking about the Greek shades. John, uh, I was just wondering if so. If one takes on this uh, this view of karma, mm-hmm. you know, in in you know multiple lives, you know, rebirth, and uh, you know, there can come about that sanwega, the terror. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you've found any like uh, ways to to relate to that terror, like that consistently work to make it like to channel it in a way which isn't like if you're not just completely afraid and you know, okay. Um. You have to realize this is your only way out, is your practice. You have to have the confidence. Because this is why the, the virtue of basada is also is often paired with sangwega. Basada is the confidence. There is a way out. It's something you can do. And it's meant to focus you, sort of keep you on that path, rather than saying, well, let's try exploring a few other paths in the meantime. Just a few more points. Okay. Okay. However, even though there are these tendencies and patterns in karma, the pattern doesn't always play out in predictable ways. The Buddha's image for karma is not mechanical, it's like flowing water. And as we all know with flowing water, it can go in various ways. First of all, there's the time lag. Sometimes there are present rewards for actually breaking the precepts. The passage here, we don't have to read it in detail, it's passage 19, where the Buddha goes and says, have you ever noticed someone being rewarded for killing, someone being rewarded for stealing, someone being rewarded for illicit sex, rewarded for breaking all the precepts? And that that has happened. So in other words, words, the, the results of karma are not always immediate. Sometimes they'll work out only after a long period of time. That's basically the message of passage 19. I like some of the passages here. Have you ever seen a man adorned because this man attacked the king's enemy and took his life? Yes. What are some of the other things that people get rewarded for? This man attacked the king's enemy and stole a treasure. This, good, this man seduced a woman and girls. Good, excuse me. This, this man seduced the wives of the enemies. The king's enemy. <laughs> the king rewards him. <laughs> this man made a lie. Made the king laugh with a lie. Okay. 
So sometimes you actually get rewarded for breaking the precepts. So it's, it's not always that the, the results of the priest or the results of behavior are immediate. Okay. Passage 20 points out the fact that there are times when a person who's done good things in this lifetime ends up going to a good destination. Sometimes someone who does good things goes to a bad destination. Someone who does good things, bad things in this lifetime, sometimes goes to a bad destination, sometimes goes to a good destination. And the second to the last paragraph here. In the case of the person who takes life, yet on the break of the body after death reappears in the good destinations, either earlier he performed the fine karma that is to be felt as pleasant, or later he performed fine karma that is to be felt as pleasant, or at the time of death he adopted and carried out right views. That's why even though he did something wrong, he still goes to the good destinations. And just the opposite. If you did something good, but you end up in hell, either earlier performed evil karma, or later performed evil karma, or at the time of death adopted and carried out wrong views. It's because of this passage that people are very careful when they're around someone who's dying to try to get them to listen to the Dharma. Or to have Dharma teachings, or have Dharma chanting, or something that keeps their mind on, on the goodness. So they don't suddenly get develop wrong views around around things at the moment of death. So this doesn't mean, you know, if you've done something wrong, you will automatically go to hell. Or if you've done something good, you can pay your way into heaven and you know, basically assume that that's what's going to happen. Because your own actions are a lot more complex than that. And then finally, and this is the passage that you were referring to, Andrea, passage 21. Finally here means just for this section. Okay? For anyone who says, in whatever way a person makes karma, that is how he is experienced. There is no living of the holy life. There is no opportunity for the right ending of stress. But for anyone who says, when a person makes karma to be felt in such and such a way, that is how its result is experienced. Okay. In other words, you're not going to necessarily experience all the, f the full measure of a bad action or the full measure of a good action. Sometimes it will come in smaller forms particularly with bad actions. If you develop, the point of this passage here is if you develop the mind in two ways. One is you develop the Brahma Viharas in an unlimited way. Then the results of past bad actions are going to be very minimal. Or your experience of them will be minimal. They'll still be negative, but it'll be very minimal. And the analogy the Buddha gives is of a, of a big lump of salt. You take the lump of salt and you put it in a small cup of water, you won't be able to drink the water. If you put it into a river, and we're assuming the river is unpolluted, you can still drink the water because there's just so much water, more water than the salt. And he says, you know, an expansive mind that's developed through the Brahma Viharas is like the river and water in a river. The other way you make your mind as expansive is you train it so it's not overcome by pleasure or pain. This requires a lot of meditation, a lot of discernment. When pain comes, you learn. Okay, you learn. You make your mind bigger than the pain. When the pleasure comes, you make your mind bigger than the pleasure. So that whatever the results of past karma be, they're going to be minimized. Your experience of them will be minimized. So the way the results of past karma are going to be felt is largely determined by your present state of mind. This is why the Buddha never talked about anybody deserving to suffer. You may have done something bad in the past lifetime, but then you do something right now to train your mind. That means that will minimize the impact of that past bad karma on your mind. This is one of the reasons why Angulimala was able to become an Arahant and not get killed. 
Any questions on that? Um, there's a question that came up. If one scans stream entry, is it possible to? I mean, is there is it possible to break the five precepts? You wouldn't do it intentionally. So it would be it would be a non-ethical. I mean, you, okay. No, I mean you, you you know you might run over somebody unintentionally or whatever, but you would you would never un, you would never intentionally break the pre, the five precepts. Okay, I'm just going to give you a final rundown here of some of these principles that we can take when we look at karma as a whole, or karma on, on the macro level, as applied to the micro level. First, it teaches your, appropriate, your proper attitude to your past bad deeds. One, you have to remember that, as we said earlier, human level is a combination of past good and bad actions. So everybody here has got bad karma, okay? My teacher had a student one time, she was a nurse, and she was very good looking. And she was seemed to be the object of the jealousy of a lot of the other nurses that she worked with, and they were always gossiping about her. And it was getting to her one day, and so she went to sit and meditate with my teacher during her lunch hour. And she had this vision of herself in a hall of, hall of mirrors. It was just like images of her going back, 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 back into the past. And she started thinking about this, and she said, you know, I've... I've been through lots of lifetimes, and I've probably been subject to all this kind of jealousy many, many lifetimes. I got her really, you know, depressed. And so she went to see my teacher, and thinking that he would give her some nice, sort of comforting words, he says, "Well, whose fault is it that you wanted to be born <laughs> as a human being? <laughs> you wanted to be a human being. This is what you get for being a human being." It kind of shocked her, but she said it was the best advice she ever got. Okay. So you accept the fact that we all got past deeds. Okay, if something bad comes up, you just take it in stride. Okay. Okay. You remember that remorse will not erase the bad deed. That's the, that's the point of passage 22. Um, you can read that on your own. <laughs> we don't have time. Okay. It also teaches that you should develop the Brahma Viharas, especially equanimity, as a way of making your mind more expansive so that you're not so affected by the results of past actions. And you also want to meditate to develop the skills that you need to handle pain and pleasure. These are the most important skills you can develop as a meditator in order to deal with the pains of past bad karma. Secondly, the attitude towards developing good deeds. You have to see every moment as your opportunity for a fresh start. You can always practice generosity, virtue, and meditation. These are the basic forms of meritorious actions. And these things will have an impact both now and in the future. Um, traditionally, they say that if you're generous, you win the love, trust, and respect from others, and you yourself are fearless. The same applies to virtue. People will trust you if you're a virtuous person. You can go into an assembly, and you're not going to be afraid if somebody's going to accuse you of something if you've been virtuous. If they do accuse you, you can speak speak up in full confidence. Why well, I didn't do that? Secondly, you bring a better life narrative to your meditation. If you've been going through the day, you know, living in an occupation that's where you're actually harming people, or you're doing something where you're lying or stealing through the course of the day, and then you sit down to meditate, your mind's going to be a mess. 
But if you look back on the events of the day and say, I didn't harm anybody today, it's a lot easier to settle down with a sense of confidence and no hypocrisy in your meditation. So this is another good reason to develop good deeds. Third, the principle of karma applies to your attitude to your own good and bad fortune. Remember, there's the teaching on what the Buddha calls the eight ways of the world, or the worldly dharmas. And basically you've got there's gain and there's loss, there's status and there's loss of status, there's praise and there's criticism, there's pleasure and pain. Notice these things come in pairs. This is basically what the world has to offer. There's going to be back and forth like this. So remember that given the fact that you're living in a complex system where progress and regress are not smooth curves, means you can't get complacent when things are going well and you can't give up hope when they're not going well. There's always a chance to change direction. So if the direction is going well right now, don't be complacent. You've got to keep on doing good things. If things are not going well, don't give up hope. There's always the possibility that you're going to run out of the, the end of that past bad karma at any moment. When I was in the monastery in Thailand, there was a the woman who ran the kitchen didn't like most of the monks because her son was also a monk and she was afraid of competition. She wanted her son to be the next abbot. And so any of us who looked like we might be competition, she did whatever she could to make life miserable. And I got upset about this a couple of times. My teacher said, look, you know, this is a good lesson for you. Learn how to put up with this kind of thing. And so I said, okay, I'll just put up with it and learn to be equanimous and not try not to create any more bad karma with this woman. Maybe it'll end someday. Well, the day it ended, it ended like that. Um, I've got a few minutes. Um, it started out with the strangest invitation I ever got as a monk. Um, this woman's son had driven in. The, 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 basically, there's a long story behind this, but the sons had decided to get her out of the monastery. So just as her son was driving in, this, this guy comes from the neighborhood and says, um, there were two of us other monks there at the time. He said, I'd like to invite both of you to come to the house for a funeral chant. And he was smiling as he said it. I said, what kind of person smiles when they're inviting you for a funeral chant? Who died? He said, you'll find out. He smiled. So we got to the house. And it turned out that their vegetables had died. <laughs> you know, they had, like the Chinese farmers do when they had these large raised beds of vegetables. And all this lettuce had died. And the wife was convinced that it was foul play. That someone had come and sprayed, uh, you know, herbicide on to kill their, to kill their lettuce. We say, wait a minute, how do you know that your husband wasn't sloppy the last time you put fertilizer on the lettuce? He may have put some herbicide in the tank and then didn't wash it out properly and then put some fertilizer in the tank and fertilized the lettuce. Because um, what her plan was that the monks would chant the funeral chant for the vegetables and then I don't know if you've ever seen Thai people when they make merit. At the, during the blessing, they have this little bottle of water that they pour out. And she was going to put salt and hot peppers in the water. And this is going to be a curse on whoever killed her vegetables. And I said, suppose it were your husband who did this by mistake. Do you want to put a curse on your husband? No. Oh, well, no, no, you're here. Okay, let's go ahead and chant a funeral chant for the vegetables. <laughs> so we chanted the funeral chant for the vegetables. And then walked home, walked back to the monastery and the woman in the kitchen was gone. Her son had come and taken her out. And that was the last we ever saw her. <laughs> so I don't know exactly. I've always associated those two events in my mind.
So sometimes bad karma just ends like that. You never know. Okay. Fourth thing, a principle you want to apply to your practice in general, is your attitude towards the suffering of others. Now remember, as I said, you don't know other people's full karmic history. They have, may have a lot back there that you don't know about, good or bad. So if you see somebody else's suffering, you take it as your chance to help them if you can, for several reasons. One, maybe your action will be the one thing that will get them over the hump of whatever their past karma was. Maybe their past karma might be about to end. Secondly, you, as I said, you don't know their potential. Thirdly, you, you've been there before and you may be there again. Whatever suffering you see in the world, the Buddha says, you can assume you've been through it already. And if you don't get out of the cycle, you can go back. So here's your chance to create some good karma to help. If you want some help from other people then, you give the help now. This is mentioned in the Sanyutta Nikaya, Sanyutta 15, 11 through 12. And again, as I said, you, you have to question that idea of the running balance in the karmic account. We don't have just one karmic account, we have lots of seeds in the field. Is that kind of like a mutual fund or what? <laughs> lots of different investments, some of which may be going well, some of which may not be going well. Okay. Then finally, there are also some lessons from meditation. The proper attitude, both when negative things happen in your meditation, when positive things happen. Okay, when the positive things happen, don't get complacent. Just because something is going well today doesn't mean it's going to go well tomorrow. So you have to be very careful in how you respond to a really good stage in your meditation, a really good experience in your meditation. You have to continually being watchful, continue being careful about your actions. As for your negative experiences in meditation, you don't get upset over your setbacks. You don't engage in self-recrimination or self-defeatism. You don't complain, you ask advice and just start from where you are. Okay? You also focus on the positive. Look for the opportunity offered by this moment, this intention. Because as the Buddha said, even just inclining the mind to want to do what is skillful is already skillful. Just that one wish. I really wish I could be more skillful. Okay, that's a skillful wish. The Buddha says to nourish that. Don't dump on it. Because sometimes your mind will say, oh, you said that yesterday. You know, you're going to go back to your old ways. Don't listen to it. So maybe this time I'll make it stick. And there's the other one, of course, that says, you know, if you're inclined to do something unskillful and you say, no, I'm not going to do it, and the mind says, you're going to give in in five minutes, so you might as well give in now. You know? yeah. So you don't listen. You say, I don't know about five minutes from now, but I am responsible for right now. I'm going to take care of myself right now. Five minutes, we'll talk again. Okay. Okay. So those are some of the lessons. And then finally, there's no time to indulge in negativity. Because things can change very quickly. You may not have the opportunity to meditate much longer. I'd just like to close with a few remarks. One is on the status of karma as a belief. Okay. The issues of determinism, chaos, whether there's a creator or not, these cannot be solved by science. If you want to put it into suffering, you have to take a few certain principles as your working hypotheses. And again, what is the Buddha asking you to do? He's asking you to be responsible for your actions, to assume that whatever you do is going to have consequences. Is that too much to ask? 
The question came up earlier during the break. Well, what's the difference between this and, and being asked to believe in God? Well, if you're asked to believe in God, God's going to take care of you, right? And the, the teaching usually goes, well, human beings are incapable of straightening themselves out. Human beings can't do this. They have to depend on some outside power. That's depowering you. Which do you think is a more skillful assumption? William James talks about two types of truth. There's the truth of the observer and there's the truth of the will. Truths of the observer are things that will happen one way or another regardless of whether you're watching them or not. And in cases like that, you can't let your wants get in the way of observing them. In other words, if you want to observe you know, the way stars move or the way you know, things evolve in the universe, okay, you have to get your wants out of the way so you can actually watch the behavior. However, there are also truths of the will. If you wanted to be a pianist, you have to want it very much. You have to practice, you have to work at it for it to happen. That's something that depends on your will. And in the Buddha's basic assumption, it is possible to put an end to suffering. That is a truth of the will. It's something you have to want to put an end to, otherwise it's not going to happen on its own. And again, what kind of things is the Buddha asking you to assume here? One, it is possible to put an end to suffering. That embodies the principles of compassion and integrity. If you make this assumption, all of the teachings on actions will follow. Now, this, you know, as you said earlier, this is the basic kind of stuff you'd want to teach a child. You, know, you do have choices. Your actions have results. Try to anticipate the results of your actions when you make your choice. If you make a mistake, admit it. Try to learn from it. Talk it over with somebody. Okay. Okay. Those are all basic, good, common sense attitudes to have toward action. The Buddha simply takes that basic common sense attitude and pushes it to see how far it can go. How skillful can you be? How, what are the good, what's the ultimate goodness that can come from the results of your actions? Now, in pushing it, it goes to some unexpected places, like the principle of rebirth. But as when developing any skill, you have to take some things on faith so you can see what the skill can do before you even attempt it. You need, this, you need the faith before you attempt developing the skill. So to relate this to the issues raised at the beginning of the day, okay, what is what is the Buddhist teaching on karma? Was it deterministic? No. Does it sat, justify the status quo or evil actions? No. Does the Buddha say that people deserve to suffer? No, because remember, it's the extent to which you suffer is going to be determined by your present mind state, not by your past actions. So the Buddha never says anybody deserves to suffer. His basic unit of analysis is action and result. He's not talking about good people or bad people or people who deserve to suffer or people who don't deserve to suffer. So is this teaching psychologically damaging? I'll let you decide that for yourself. <laughs> um, one thing I forgot to mention the first time around was the, the question of the teaching on karma doesn't fit into the teaching on not-self. If you assume that there is no self, who does the karma? Who gets reborn? Now, first off, the Buddha never said there was no self. In fact, the question of whether there is or is not a self is a question he put aside. What he does have you do is look at your idea of self as an action. The teaching on not-self is also an action. You're taking your perception and you're applying it. And the question then is, when is it skillful to use the perception of self, and what kind of perception of self is skillful? And then when is it more skillful to use the perception of not-self? So instead of taking the idea of no self as a context in which you're trying to fit the teaching on karma, it's the other way around. 
you assume that there's action, and the next question is, when is your sense of self a skillful action? When is it unskillful? When is not self skillful? When is it skillful? So the action is the context. Karma is the context, and the teaching of not self has something that fits into that context. So, people say, say that you know, the teaching on karma promotes fatalism, passivity, callousness towards the suffering of others, complacency, complacency toward your own good fortune. In all these cases, the response is no. You are more sensitive to other people's sufferings because, on the one hand, you recognize that you've been there yourself and you could be there again, so you want to help when you can. It certainly doesn't make you passive because it's saying your experience of the world is entirely shaped by your present intentions. You want to do those as skillfully as possible. You're not complacent towards your own good fortune because you know it could end at any time. You've got to work on developing qualities of mind you need in case that change comes. So, that was what I wanted to say on karma today. Any last questions? Yes. Okay, I, I can just report the question. Okay. And the illness? And the illness? Is illness karma? Oh, okay. Um, two questions. The one on group karma, the Buddha never talks about group karma. Unless, you, he says we have karma as our, we're related through karma, i.e. if we all have karma, that we've done the same sort of thing together, or if some, we've done the same sort of thing, we will tend to fall in with other people who've been acting in the same way. Now, that doesn't mean we've gone through life as a group experiencing the same karma as a group. Or that one nation will always experience the karma of that nation. You know, I've always wondered about how many people after World War II, how many Germans and Japanese people were born in America. Or vice versa. You never really know. As for the question about other things that are not controlled by karma, there's a sutta, and I've forgotten the number of it, where this man comes to see the Buddha and says, I hold that everything you experience in pleasure and pain is the result of past action. And the Buddha says, well, you know that's not true. And then he takes a list of basically the, what medicine at that time taught as the causes for action. There's an imbalance in the elements in the body, um, accidents, improper care of the body, all of these things he said, and then and then karma itself. All, all these things are things that would give rise to pain or pleasure in the present moment, or basically pain in the present moment. But then you look back on that sutta we had about old karma. It says the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body. These are all old karma that you're experiencing right now. So from the context of that second sutta, basically the Buddha is saying that everything you're experiencing is a combination of old karma and new karma. Without that old karma, you wouldn't be experiencing these things. So his teaching on karma really does cover quite a lot. Particularly, it covers the issues of what extent are you suffering and what extent are you not suffering, which is the main point of his teaching. Now, as for, you know, is it the karma? That, you know, that, is it your karma that there's a moon out there? He says that's pretty irrelevant. But it is your karma whether you enjoy the moon or don't enjoy the moon. You know? Over here. Mm -hmm. 
Um, you said that uh, if you develop Brahma Viharas, the effect of bad karmas become minimal. Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering uh, whether you can also conclude that if you practice Brahma Viharas, that the effect of good karmas or results of good karmas come ahead of the bad karmas. Well, again, you're, you're creating more good karma right there with the Brahma Viharas. Um, and minimizing the effect doesn't necessarily mean that you're minimizing the external effect, but you are minimizing the amount that your mind is going to suffer if it's bad karma. But the more good karma you create, you're, you're creating just better, you know, it's sort of more inducements to help bring out other good karma as well. That said, there is a belief that you know the more you meditate, sometimes you're, you know, all your the, the people that you've harmed in the past, if there are spirits hanging around, they get jealous of you and they would try to stop you. <laughs> you got the case of Buddha and Mara. You know. So sometimes the harder you try to do good, the more obstacles you run into, and just you just have to take that in stride and say, look, I got a lot of bad karma. I must have been I must have been a real character the last time around, you know. And just take that in stride. I have another related question um, um, about thousands of people sometimes getting killed by tsunamis and mm -hmm, things. Mm -hmm. Is that karma related in some way or not? I wouldn't say that the karma caused the tsunami, but the fact that they were right there. You have to remember everybody's going to die at some point or another, right? So we've all got the karma to die. And it just so happens that their, their, their karma happened to... Happened to um, reach fruition at that point, that particular karma. But it doesn't mean that they all did the same thing together as a group. It's like different people going around with different sensitivities to chemicals. Yes, over here. I have a question. I'm almost embarrassed. I am embarrassed, but I want to ask it. Even when we know that our action will lead to suffering, mm -hmm. what is it in us that chooses to still do that action? We have, we have seen the consequences mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and we have set, set the intention to not do it again. Mm -hmm. And then you do it. But I, yeah. Have you ever noticed the dialogue that goes on in your mind? Yeah. Because sometimes there's some decisions are made just under the surface and you let them happen. And then, then I mean, there's the various ways. You know, certain thoughts tend to have a strong hormonal component. And then they can use them. See, your body's got this reaction right now. It really wants to do this. And so you have to learn how to argue with that. Say, no, that's not, that's not a true deep desire in me. That's just hormones. You know? And the mind has lots and lots of subterfuges. And it's like, what would be a good example? It's like everybody pretending that the president can make all the decisions. A lot of decisions that we made on other levels of the government. You know. So your mind has many. Think of the mind as a committee again. 
And there's part of you that just says, I don't care, I want to do this. And it'll catch you at a moment of weak mindfulness, when your discernment isn't up for it, a kind of a weariness, because it keeps pounding at you again and again and again. You say, okay, I'll give in once. Well, that's not just once, it's going to be many times. And so you've got to learn how to be quick with your arguments all the time. This is why mindfulness is really, really important, and alertness is something you really have to develop. I wonder how much responsibility we should take for other people's action, especially in uh, correcting those actions. So, say you have a friend and he behaves in an unskillful way, and mm-hmm. you would want to stop it, but in a way that's the person's choice, say the person's a drug addict or something like that. So, mm-hmm. where is the limit where we would want to interfere and try to... Okay, s- you have to have a sense of how your friend is going to respond, and if you don't have a sense, you try, just try. Thinking about, okay, what would be, be the best way to speak in a way that the friend wouldn't take offense. Um, you have to get the person at the right time, the right mood. Um, try to figure out a good way of sort of persuading the person something that would really be conducive to that. Um, don't take a very strong moralistic approach saying, well, this is just bad, this is wrong. But in essence, do you really want to do this? Do you know what this is going to do to you down the line? To make it make it sure, make it clear to the friend that you're on his side, or her side. In, in certain cases, that's that's a person's choice. Like yeah, eventually person. it is the person's choice because so you can't take responsibility, and there comes a point where you have to develop equanimity. You've tried all the techniques you you can think of, and nothing works. You're saying that's beyond me. I was just thinking about my my old my older brother had a teacher. In grade school, we were in a little school out in, in eastern end of Long Island, a little farm school where we had, what, two rooms and eight grades. And there's one woman who had the first three grades, and Mrs. Lane had the last five grades. And I had fallen in love with Mrs. Lane ever since I was a little kid. My mother was um, president of the school board, and she would have to go to talk to the first grade teacher who was also the principal. And I'd wander into Mrs. Lane's room. Mrs. Lane was this old woman, you know, sure, her hands were yellowed from cigarettes and everything, and her hair was kind of salt and pepper and all over the place. But she would pick me up and she'd put me on her lap and the school, the class would stop and she'd read me a story. I thought she was just the coolest thing. And I said, I can't wait till I'm in the fourth grade and I can get to study with Mrs. Lane. Well, I got into the fourth grade and she retired. <laughs> but my, my brother had a story that he told about her when he entered the fourth grade. Um, she gave everybody their assignments for all the different grades and then she went down to the ladies' room and smoked. <laughs> And, of course, everybody was running around the class, you know. And then she'd had her smoke, and then she came up the stairs. And the other kids noticed she was coming up the stairs, and so they all got back into their seats. Except for my brother, who was still just kind of running around. And so Mrs. Lane came into the room, and she said, Galen, that was his name, Galen, you stay after class. And so he stayed after class, and she sat him down, and she said, Look, you're going to have to learn how to be sneaky. (laughs) When you hear me come up the stairs, you get in your seat. You know? <laughs> and everybody loved Mrs. Lane, you know. And you know she had the best discipline in that room that I'd ever seen. You know? 
And it was because she wasn't being moralistic or anything. The first great teacher was horribly moralistic, you know. Everybody hated her. She'd come out with these pronouncements. If you work when you should work, you shall play when you should play. If you do not work when you should work, you shall not play when you should play, okay? And you were sure that was someplace in the Bible that this was inscribed. <laughs> but with Mrs. Lane, you always got the sense that she was on your side. So the first thing you've got to do if you're trying to t- change someone else's behavior is make sure you give the impression you're on his side. Um, there's some stories, uh, I'm not sure if they're from the commentaries or the canon or the uh, Buddha Vamsa. Uh, for example, um, Maha Moggallana was murdered, mm-hmm. and that was purported to be because in a past life he had, mm-hmm. I think, performed patricide. Or, or yeah, killed his parents. And then uh, the Buddha was injured by Devadatta, by a boulder or, or something, mm-hmm. and there was some, I don't know the exact story, but there's A some, sliver of rock on his foot. Yeah. yeah, but that was due to something he did in a former life. What do you make of those, those stories where it makes a direct connection with this One event life? to the next event? Yeah. Again, this, you know, the, the workings out of karma are really complex. Um, the story about Mogalan is in the commentary. The story about the Buddha getting a sliver in his foot is in the canon, but the explanation of tying it to a particular event in the past, that's actually in the Abhidhanas, all of which are later, later kind of stuff. Um, the Buddha himself discouraged that kind of con- that kind of speculation. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if there was some you know, some connection. But again, he discouraged trying to tie one event to another event that in that singular way. Yeah. There's a hand back here. I'm just curious about in the. In the blessings, when you do the, um, may the devas protect you, how does that play out karmically? How does it play out karmically? Yeah, like... Well, you're basically, you're giving a wish. Now, whether the devas are actually going to protect those persons, who knows? Usually, if a deva is going to protect you, you've got to have some sort of karmic connection with that deva, or else they're not going to take any interest. And what would protection look like? Because you're still, I mean, they're not going to affect your actions or the results of your actions. Oh, you may have a dream that warns you about something or a vision and meditation that may warn you about something. thing, of course, you've got to watch out for. There's some Davids out there that have some issues with you. (laughs) 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 So you can never be totally sure. But that's that's the kind of thing. There'd be just, you you get this hunch that you don't want to go someplace or you don't want to say something. That's the closest thing I can think of. Okay. Is that it for the day? Okay, well, thank you for your attention. I hope this is helpful. <laughs>